I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Our guest today is John Feynman, founder of Inner City Weightlifting. John's program works with individuals who are deemed by the police force as the most likely to kill or be killed on the streets of Boston. John grew up in Amherst, Mass. He went to Bryant University in Rhode Island and later got his MBA from Babson. He joined AmeriCorps and at the same time became a fitness trainer. These two experiences merged as he, in 2010, launched Inner City Weightlifting. John was named as one of the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce 2014 Outstanding Young Leaders. He was a 2012 Social Innovator by Social Innovation Forum and received the Ernst & Young 2015 Entrepreneur of the Year New England Award in the Social Entrepreneurship category. Morning, John. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So when I first met you, we talked about how, I think this is right, you used to get the list of the most likely to kill or be killed in the city of Boston, and then you would go and introduce yourself to those guys. Is that story kind of it's somewhat, yeah, it's it's pretty on track. Uh, I didn't I, know there was a list, by the way. How did you know there was a list? So I actually didn't until about maybe seven, eight months into our, our first year of inner city weightlifting. And okay. I got this call from the superintendent of police at first asking me, do I know what I'm doing? And I'm like, I think I do. And he's asking me if I know who we're working with. And I'm like, I think I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his next question was, how do you get them to the gym? Huh. Uh, and I told him I picked them up. Yeah. And... It was something so simple that also just blew his mind. Like no one else was doing that at the time or very few people. What were, were you doing? doing? So you're in your car <clears throat> driving around? So I, I started off, um, so I was, I was in this like green Honda Civic okay. um, that was maybe one future stop away from just completely it's dying. Perfect. It's a perfect. <laughs> I, had a, I had an orange one yeah. like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so at first I actually had no clue that this list existed. It came from that conversation with mm-hmm. the superintendent where then he told me about this data and this list. And we were working with just over 50 people on, on this list of like 245 people. Wow. Um, I started off in a juvenile detention center uh, working with people who had gun related crimes. Uh, and previously, I'd done some work through AmeriCorps where I was working with people in MS-13, and, and they kind of just profoundly changed my perception as to who they were as people, not yeah. as scary statistics, and, and kind of got me going down this path. What were you doing? So so in that original work that you were doing with AmeriCorps, what, what were you doing exactly that helped you see the humans behind these stories? So I was actually doing everything they told me not to do. Yeah. Um, I, I played soccer in undergrad. I did this year called Athletes in Service to America, which is under the AmeriCorps umbrella. Okay. And honestly, I just really wanted to stay involved in sports. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't have a job lined up that I really enjoyed, so I figured this would be a great opportunity to kind of do something for a year that I would be passionate about, that might be able to build my connections. Uh, and you go through this AmeriCorps training, and you're told how you're going to save people's lives. Uh, and, and the people you're going to be working with and, and the devastating circumstances that they're coming from. Mm. And I get to this school in East Boston, and, and people definitely were growing up with more disadvantage, way more disadvantage than I had growing up. Right. Uh, and yet there were so many great programs out there, that they, and they were choosing these programs on their own. Yep. Uh, so there's someone named Alexa, and he was 12 years old and kind of in the process of he kept getting suspended. He was most likely about to drop out. Uh, and, and in fact did, mm. um, but I was actually told to stay away from him because he was getting initiated into MS-13, his brother was in it, his family was in it, um, and it was through soccer, I had a chance to meet him, his friends, and, and again, I got to know them first as people. Right. And when you know someone as a person, fear can't rationalize avoidance. So this kid, this 11-year-old kid on the soccer field, it was just a kid playing soccer was also being initiated into a gang. Yep, exactly. And what kinds of conversations did you have with him? And how did that then translate into, oh, I can help kids like this 11-year-old kid? Yeah, you know, Initially, it, yeah, I think this is the real power of sport. And, and ultimately what, what weight training has done for us is that it just evens the playing field a little bit. It's yeah. not about this kind of power dynamic that exists. It's about this 
game that you are actually unified in. Yeah. Uh, so the conversations actually had nothing to do about life. It was, it was just kind of we were smiling and laughing, and, and he ended up being one, one of uh, my favorite people to work with for the first part of that year before he ultimately got suspended and, and kicked out. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I, I was looking for other programs to get him and some of his friends in, and, and no one would work with them. They'd either already been kicked out or because mm. of his name and, and how he was known in the community, mm. uh, people were really hesitant um, to work with him or his friends. And I just saw this uh, real gap in services. You know, right. There were so many great programs working pe with people who had disadvantages, mm -hmm. uh, working with people who are still in school. Mm -hmm. um, but I couldn't really find very many, um, or any at the time, not that they weren't out there, um, programs that were willing to work with someone that has a lot of safety considerations that you'll have to take uh, right. uh, into account. Um, I fear if no one else wants to do this, if I'm actively being told, don't go near him, stop working with him. Right. Uh, if no one else wants to do it, I'm actually enjoying this. Oh, that's so, so maybe I should. What a what a gap, you know that, that what a gap that you that you saw. How did you, you know, I think the superintendent a police question was probably a, a very rational and good one. How, how did you know <laughs> that you knew what you were doing when you shifted gears and said, okay, well, there is a gap in the industry and I'm going to go fill that gap by helping kids like, what was his name again? Alexan. About like Alexan. Um, so did you do anything to kind of prepare for this or you just kind of said, okay, I'm, and why did you pick weightlifting? Like what, how did, how did this whole thing kind of, come to form. Yeah. I, you know, I would probably argue, I still don't know what I'm doing. Uh, no, so, about that. uh, you know, the fact is I, I grew up in Amherst mass, you know, yep. uh, I've never been shot. Mm -hmm. I haven't done time in jail. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't grow up in a family income of less than $10,000 per year. Um, whereas the majority of the people we're working with today, all three of those things are true. Mm. Um, so it's really important that for this to succeed, for ICW to succeed, I had to listen. That was my only choice. Yeah. Uh, and when you listen, something really cool happens. Yeah. It's not about solving a problem from your perspective anymore. It's about gaining perspective and seeing new solutions to challenging and, and complex social issues. So who are you listening to? Uh, I was listening to people in our program. I was listening to Alexan. Mm -hmm. uh, I was listening to uh, the people I, I would train on, on Saturdays at a juvenile detention center. Mm -hmm. uh, and in terms of how I chose weight training, mm -hmm. um, it wasn't a well thought out plan. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was something that I just enjoyed doing. Okay. Uh, at the end of that year of AmeriCorps, I actually became a full-time personal trainer. So this, this idea didn't kind of just happen overnight. Right. Uh, I went from an AmeriCorps stipend of like $800 a month. Mm -hmm. uh, within six months, I was making $120,000 a year training clients. Mm. Um, and I loved personal training. Mm -hmm. And after a couple of years of that, I... I I felt like I hit a ceiling. You know, there's 56 sessions in my schedule every week. Thankfully, mo uh, uh, some people would reschedule and give me some time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was actually talking to a couple of my clients um, who asked me what, what it is that I ultimately want to do. And, I, and somehow I started talking to them about Alexan huh. and this idea of using weight training mm -hmm. to work with people who changed my life. Um, so, so the the gym for you is just the field. It's the same. It's yeah. the same. It's the place where you start to build a relationship. Exactly. Where you can be physically exerting yourself and laughing and 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 challenging yeah. individuals. That's it's a yeah. future playing field. Basically. Exactly. And and as important, it's also our excuse to reach out. Yeah. It's our purpose to connect with someone that society is otherwise telling us to avoid and and to do so mm. in this way that I think is sadly unique because normally when you're reaching out to someone who has been incarcerated, who has faced such extreme trauma and circumstances, people are reaching out to them to say, I can help you. Right. This is simply saying, hey, you want to work out at three o'clock today. It's again, it's an even playing field that kicks off a relationship in, in a really genuine way without the traditional power dynamics. So how does it happen today then? How does someone end up, because you're, you're celebrating now your 10th year. January 5th was our 10th anniversary. That's amazing. And so you have 10 years of history doing this, and I'm sure it looks a little different than you driving around in your green Civic. I, I, now, I now have a gone. black HRV. Okay, so. there you go. And so, 
you upgrade it? Are you still driving around and, and making those invitations? Or are folks who are already participating in your program bringing more individuals in? How, how do you find, what do you call them, your clients or your students? Uh, so we actually, we, we've gone through a lot of narrative change uh, yeah. in order to really kind of respect the people in our program, who we now refer to as the people in our program, okay. um, and, and kind of play against the perceptions and, and, and stereotypes that society often places upon them. Yeah. Um, so it, it's been kind of this real evolution, uh, not just in terms of the program, but how we talk about what we do. Um, it's, a and, it's a beautiful, pure definition, actually. Yeah. Right? There's no. nothing, there's no... Yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing in that word, in those words, that isn't exactly what. Yeah, ex exactly. I love that. So, so when people in your program get to your program, I guess first of all, how do they get there? Uh, so, still, transportation is, is a big issue. We pick people mm -hmm. up and, and get them to and from the gym. Yep. Um, what I about the first invitation, though? The first invitation is you pulling up next to someone and saying, hey, do you want to go to the gym with me today? Sometimes if, if we have a connection. Okay. Uh, at this point, we've been around long enough. A lot of it is word of mouth yep. from from people who are already with us. Okay. Uh, and we kind of know who is most active okay. um, and, and who we're trying to target. And, and at the same time... You know that because of the the people in your program and the work that you're doing with them, or do you know it because of work that you do with the police or both? or how? Because like, you must be mapping this all the time. Yeah, so especially the people in our program. Yeah. Um, we do have a... We're fortunate we have a pretty good relationship with the police, but it's it's kind of one arm removed Yeah. Um, or, or one degree removed. It's We're in the middle of this space, yeah. <laughs> where there are trust issues yeah, of course. Um, on, on every side. And we are very careful to make sure that we can be um, kind of neutral and a positive influence right. uh, on, on people's lives. And, and also, I think one of the most important things that came out of that first year in 2010 when we were getting feedback, uh, people said that they felt safe in the gym. You know, they yeah. felt like they belonged. And that really became the core of, of and the foundation uh, for our program and, and what we would never compromise. Talk a little bit about the program and um, how I, I know there are four stages of the program and talk about how someone moves. So someone who has been arrested, has been incarcerated, has potentially been shot once or multiple times, that individual comes into your program. I can imagine that's a, a very raw state um, in which, the, which they sit. And then how do they move through the program and what does success look like along the way? Yeah. Initially, in 2010, this was going to be just a weightlifting program. Mm -hmm. it, it was such a naive concept of, of, of mine. And somehow weightlifting was actually going to be what would work. Yeah. You know, we we're going to get people into the Olympics and college athletics scholarships. And, and at the same time, I was always very clear uh, who we wanted to reach. Right. Uh, and we start doing the work and we realize we've got people who are paralyzed from bullet wounds. Mm. Uh, we have people going in and out of jail. Unfortunately, we have people that get killed. And the idea that weight training was going to solve something was absurd. Mm. But what was working was this text message that at the time in this bootstrapped pilot model, we'd send three times a week saying, hey, I'm working out at three o'clock today. You want to join? And that kicked off what would ultimately become this four-stage model that we have today. Uh, the first stage being trust. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no reason for the people in our program to trust me yeah. right away. If anything, I look like and have been called the FBI yeah. uh, until I developed that relationship. And then someone's like, no, 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 he's cool. <laughs> Thank God. Um, yeah. uh, so it's really about initially earning, earning someone's trust. Right. The second stage is hope. And that was really important because initially we were talk, people would talk to us about the importance of education and careers. And it is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And everyone wants that. But it's also Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right. If you can't see past today, right. an education, a career, while you want it, it's too far into the future for you to prioritize that over your basic needs of that you have to take care of just to see tomorrow. Yeah, and I think I, like it can't be said to. I mean, it feels like a very light thing when you say, "Oh, well, there are so many kids," and I, I know this talking to kids in the Boston Public Schools. There are so many kids who believe that their runway is kind of eighteen years old. Yeah, it, it's, it's like extraordinary to think that that is just like that's where they see the wall. So if between now and eighteen, yeah, they're going to kind of survive. 
it, it's and tragic. It's a real thing, yeah. yeah. And, and it also, it, it takes me back to the things that I took for granted growing up. You know, everyone around me had an, had some master's degree. Right. So college was always in my future, and of it was course. just what people do. Whereas the people we're working with, most people they know go to jail, not college. Right, or they're dead. And, yeah, and, and, they and so the impact Probably that that sell has. drugs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, it's, it's survival. So that second stage is really about leveraging the gym now to deepen those relationships, okay. to create hope by putting more options on the table. So are they already then seeing past 18 or past present in phase two? They're not necessarily seeing past it, mm -hmm. but they are seeing toward it, if that makes sense. Sure. They, they, if they're coming into the gym, yeah. it means that they're willing to honor that relationship, that trust, yeah. to take a chance on something mm -hmm. that may or may not work out, mm -hmm. but to take that chance because it might lead to a different alternative. And that's kind of the beginning of hope. Yeah. And what happens over time is you'll actually hear people, one, sometimes they'll say how they have hope, oh. uh, but other times they'll start talking about what they want to do in a year. And, and that is such an important moment and that is also where we start to kick off, and all, all four stages are really happening at the same time, but where we focus and prioritize uh, shifts based on, on where the person is. And that starts to kick off that third stage of the model. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's all about bridging social capital. Mm -hmm. So roughly a third of the people in our program, uh, they're studying to become and become personal trainers. Okay. But the majority, they're leveraging the network in the gym mm -hmm. to find jobs in other industries. Mm. Uh, tell, talk just talk a little bit about the ecosystem in the gym because it's not just the people who come to you to to, to who who are coming out of out of these um, difficult situations, but it's also clients, right? So you've got this mix of individuals in the gym. This, this is what I believe is the most important part of, of our model um, and has the biggest impact and, and also is where my passion is. Yeah. So we have personal training clients and also corporate training clients. Mm -hmm. uh, personal training clients are people who are coming to either of our gyms in Dorchester or Kendall Square, and they are paying the people in our program to train them. Yeah. And these are generally affluent people who have never known anyone that's been to jail before. Mm -hmm. And what makes this so special and unique is that all the power dynamics again get flipped. Yeah. So you're not there to mentor someone, you're there to learn from someone. Right. And it kicks off these really genuine relationships that on one side give the people in our program access to new networks and opportunities that lead to jobs in and outside of the personal training industry. Right. And on the other side, they gain voice and agency to change the narrative about who they are, yeah. the communities that they come from. And most important, when you look at this history of this country, starting with slavery, moving into racial terror, moving into segregation, moving into mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. What's been used all along to perpetuate this is fear and criminalization of people of color. Right. And when you are now friends with someone who statistically is one of the 245 most dangerous people in the city, right? you are forced to wrestle with the nuance that people are not all good or all bad. Yeah that you can't just confine someone to a data point. And if that is true, then fear cannot be used to rationalize mass incarceration. And you start to have this much greater impact. And that really becomes our vision for the future is how do we leverage these core services? How do we grow these core services to have more people question these circumstances and social norms that lead to and perpetuate uh, whether it's for good intention or not, uh, oftentimes to perpetuate the very social issue we are trying to solve. Yeah, talk about that just for a minute because you, it's, I was looking at your website the other day and it mentioned the cost of um, incarcerated, the cost of gun violence, I think is the stat that's on, but it ends up with lots of incarcerated individuals and people dying. And can you just talk a little bit about the cost? Like, it's, it's kind of extraordinary how expensive it is for America to manage this, yeah. this problem. And then um, what it's like when you start to add this like rationalizing of the problem and bringing humanity into the problem. And, and it really kind of opens up other ways of looking at and solving this issue. We are spending $80 billion or more mm -hmm. on prison industries right now. Right. And what's interesting, I don't know if interesting is quite the right word, but curious. what's, <laughs> what's curious <laughs> about that 
uh, I was asking a bunch of people we were working with that first year, how much money would it take you to not have to turn to the streets for money? Right. $150, $200 a week. I know. So we're talking about $10,000 a year, and yet we're locking people up. Yeah. At a price point of somewhere between thirty-five and fifty-five thousand a year, right in Boston, because I think you said in Bo- in Massachusetts it costs about fifty-five thousand dollars for one year yep. to the to direct cost of an incarcerated individual. Yeah, and part of that depends on on which prison they're at. So there's, yeah. there's variables, but that that is a a kind of the average cost. Um, but why then, why why doesn't ever anyone ever take an economic approach? To that? I mean, you are, but but it seems like right if if we are if we are spending fifty five thousand dollars and I, I mean I, I think once they rationalize it, it's probably more than ten k to keep them off the street right but let's assume it's like forty k because a bunch of yeah. guys are now graduating through your program and and making forty thousand dollars a year, you know why why aren't we using more carrots to solve this problem? Why isn't there more love, John? <laughs> I think, again, it, it comes down to fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, it, these are instincts that are actually baked into us. Yeah. So until we really understand how our instincts play into the model and, and kind of this, this psychological perspective and sociological perspective, mm. it is so easy to leverage fear to say, I'm safer this way. And, and you don't have to look further than the opioid epidemic. Right. You know, until it started happening to white affluent communities, it was, it was this war on drugs. It was, you know, keep, keep that away from us. Right. It starts happening to someone you know who either looks like you or is your family member, and you realize the solution is not to criminalize this person. Mm. The solution is to help this person. Yeah, and and unfortunately, I think too often, uh, and, and this isn't to point the finger at anyone because these are our basic instincts. Right. We have this fight or, fight or flight response. Right. You know, fear is baked into us for survival. Right. Uh, but we're also living in, in a society now where our instincts aren't necessarily serving us the same way they did back in, in you know, the age where we were trying to hunt for our food every day and, and, and we we're constantly under, under threat of attack from wherever. Yeah. Um, yeah our instincts are very expensive. Yeah. Go back to the ecosystem that you've created in the gyms and um, this notion that social capitalism is a very important part of kind of shifting the paradigm that the f- people who come to you um, are in. Have you seen that social capital actually be built up and be used? I mean, does it does it really work? Do you have examples of it? Yeah, we, we have more examples than, than I can count, luckily. Yeah. Um, so... It, you know, in some cases, we have people who uh, have a probation violation are looking at five years of prison. Yeah. Uh, one person in particular had three of his personal training clients show up, 12 letters, and he was released. Uh, and then a year wow. later, he was off probation and out of jail for the first time in over a decade. And he's remained that way today. This was about four years ago now. Okay. Uh, we have other examples of one of our personal training clients getting someone to the electrical union. Mm-hmm. And in this apprenticeship program that generally won't accept anyone with a violent crime, mm-hmm. and yet they're able to overlook it because they now know this person. Huh. We had another person who applied for a job at Boston Medical Center. He got held up at the Corey screen. Yeah, One of our clients knew the head of that department makes a call to get coffee and he's hired the next day. Uh, we have another person who's a CEO of a company. He hired uh, two people from our program to work in his cafe. Uh, we have a director uh, of a Toyota dealership. He's hired a total of 17 people from our program because he knows them. And, and you know, I even look back at my own upbringing. It's like my first internship was at a company where my dad worked. Of course, right, right, right. <laughs> and, and so we, we, so many times we all leverage this. Yes. And, and I think it's... It was eye-opening to me is this was not an original part of our model. Um, but when we recognize this mm. bridging of social capital and what it could do in both directions. How does how does it, um, I, I can't even put myself in, in the shoes of someone who comes to you. What is it like, though, to shift from, you know, I'm a kid, I'm 11, 15, 17-year-old kid on the street who's been shot, has been in prison, to I'm working in a cafe because I was training the CEO of this company and now, like... That's a massive social shift. Is it, is it scary for these guys? Absolutely. I think it's, it's as scary for the people in our program as it is for someone from the outside yeah. to show up at the corner of Morton and Blue Hill and pull over and get gas at that mobile station. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 
Like imagine, right? Like how do I act? What do I do? Who do I say? What are people going to think of me? And it's where when when all four of these stages, the four stages being trust, hope, social capital, economic mobility, they're all happening at the same time. It's where we've been really purposeful about where we focus Mm. because we can leverage that trust to get someone into the gym. Uh, We can leverage that trust. Uh, We brought a group of people over to Harvard Business School uh, Mm. on Tuesday. What did you do there? Uh, so we actually got to participate in a class where, where uh, the class is actually a live case study on earning trust. Oh. Uh, so as myself, uh, we had five people from the program, three people were on stage and, and just talking with the uh, student body uh, yeah. on stage to tell people right. um, and, and teach people. Uh, but you can leverage that trust to get people into situations that, that they might not otherwise want to go to, and then all of a sudden they go there. So we had people from our program now brought in as thought leaders and, right. and, and teaching. Uh, and what happens is that when you go into those things, initially just because you trust someone, mm. you start getting more comfortable. Same way I remember feeling like a fish out of water the first time I met up with uh, someone from our program who where I met with him in a park to meet a bunch of his friends. Yeah. Uh, but the more you do it, the more you start understanding the social situation. The more you start right. understanding those social norms, feeling welcome, feeling like you belong. And, and at and, some point, it's home. Exactly. Um, yeah. So while it's never an easy shift, especially when when you know, the people in our program have, have had so many years of trauma, mm. while it's never an easy shift, there is this kind of uh, uh, initial testing of the waters with us, mm-hmm. that developing of that relationship, and then we can leverage that relationship to start to provide new experiences uh, for people um, and, and vice versa, them for, for us. How do um, the people in your program deal with trauma? Uh, in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually, two years ago, brought on a mental health resource coordinator. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has been incredible. Yeah, I bet. Uh, you know, we initially, and I was the one who made the initial mistake, and, and as a result, I ended up having to t- train our staff that we're not social workers. You know, yeah. we we will often be in situations where because of that trust, because of that relationship, yeah. people will open up to us. And that part is great. Mm-hmm. But we need to know where we cannot push a conversation further because yeah. it's opening up an emotional wound that we don't know how to stitch back together versus listen sympathize, empathize to whatever extent you can, knowing that, you know, at least for me, I never really have experienced any of this. Right. Um, but then make that referral to a group like Youth Connect. Right. Um, or now to Emily, uh, who can then handle all, all, all the different resources and, and figure out which resource might be best. But they do, you are able to find resources. Yeah. And, and, and many of them take advantage of those resources? They do. Uh, it, it's often, I, I think, the, the resources that are out there, they are also overburdened and, and overworked, so it can yeah. take some time. It does, um, okay. And, and that part is unfortunate. Yeah. Um, but it's not because, you know, good people aren't out there. It's just there are some tough situations and, and, and that need fast responses, and, and the willingness of someone can change day-to-day as well. Sure. Um, and so it's kind of how do you take advantage of those opportunities before it kind of goes away? So, right. And so um, talk about recidivism and how, you know, how often do you see people who come to your gym escape that cycle or get pulled back into it? How, how effective is the program and all, all of the things that you're talking about that are very positive? How effective is it in cutting cutting through that cycle? One of the reasons why we created this four-stage model, uh, in that first year, I was looking around at other organizations. I knew recidivism was going to be one of the outcomes that, that certainly we wanted to have an impact and, and that we were going to be uh, judged on. And recidivism is... is- uh, folks who are incarcerated ending up back in prison after they've gotten out of prison. It, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I was looking at other organizations, and I kept seeing like 2% recidivism rate, 3% recidivism rate. Huh. And my first thought was, they're not working with this population. Yeah. Or their data is not yeah. not quite right. accurate, or, or it's only a section of the data. Right, because you so, know how hard it is. Yeah, and yeah. if you're, if you're wor- truly working with who you say you are, no one's changing in one day. Right. <laughs> so 
the natural starting point should actually be a really high recidivism rate. Mm -hmm. um, and the four stages that allowed us to track recidivism overall, but also within the four stages. So now in our 10th year, actually now in our 11th year, yeah. uh, we can show a drop in recidivism from over 80% in the first stage, it's 88%, to 8.2% in that fourth stage. And that does take time. It's not happening overnight. And the other part that wow. is shown through that is that most people we start working with, chances are they're going to end up back in jail. But that does not cancel the program. That just means that's an opportunity to stick with someone, right? Uh, to continue to earn their trust, to be there not just in the good times, uh, but to be there at those most challenging moments. Are they happy to see you if they if they do end up back in prison when they're when they're back out? Yeah, um, I, I have never visited someone that that has not been excited in, in, in our staff as well. And and you know, sadly, I think that what happens for a lot of people is that they go in and they're just completely cut off from the outside. They may have one or two people trying to be in touch with them, and, and oftentimes that's their mother or some family member, but that's also incredibly expensive when you look at how expensive it is to have your phone on right. to accept a call from prison. Right. When you look at right. the fact that someone might be the only working person of a household and now they have to take time off to visit someone in jail because the visiting hours don't line up with right. a working schedule. Um, so a lot of times they get cut off and, 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 you mm. know, a visit can be uh, a really powerful way to be there for someone. And it actually even has kind of become one of our, our core philosophies in the way we set up our work, which is we are never going to, we never promise to solve someone's problem. Right. One, it's condescending Two, we can't, mm -hmm. <laughs> these right. are chronic issues. Right. So our promise is just to be there for someone so they don't have to solve alone. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what happens. You end up, you visit someone in prison. You know, when someone gets killed, what can you possibly do or say? Yeah. And the most powerful thing is you just show up and you sit on that couch. Yeah. Um, you're there for someone right. by their side. Right. Uh, and, and that's ultimately what, what really works. And it sets up this really honest foundation to do the work. And it attracts them back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's another part, I think this is from your website, uh, that, uh, Fewer than 100, or it's about 100 youth who are driving 50% of the gun violence in Boston? About 245 to 450, depending on what kind of data set you're looking at. Okay. So very small. So then, so then, yeah, less what, than 1%. Half of, is it like half of them then are working with you? We have a good amount. Yeah. Um, now, part of that is that in this four stage model, the trust stage means yeah. that we're in touch with someone, they've expressed interest. Yeah. One of our biggest capacity restraints is that we, we, don't compromise people's safety. So we wouldn't mix people or groups together that wouldn't otherwise get along. Right. Um, so, so if there's, if there's a gang member and there's a, another gang member and they're obviously at odds, you're, you're not going to bring them into the same gym. No. Right. So one person will have to work with remotely and it's, it's you know, mm -hmm. light touch trying to make referrals. And that usually ends up in the same situation where we do our best, but there's just not a lot yeah. out there. There are some great programs as well. Um, but it can be a lot tougher. So, so a, a roughly half of the people we're working with are really light touch mm -hmm. at this point because okay. we just can't safely Get work them. with them. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. The logistics are, are not what I imagined growing up in, in Amherst. That <laughs> <laughs> you just can't physically be where somebody else is. How do you know? I guess you know because you talk to everybody and they tell you. Yeah, we, we yeah. from day one, have just listened to the people we're working with. They are, are directly involved in the intake process, uh, and they help guide us as to who can and can't be in the gym. Um, and we do so in a way where we're not like giving away someone's address or anything like right, that. But right. uh, we always make sure that we are checking with people in the gym. And, and it helps on, on both sides because they feel safe when someone new comes in. Mm -hmm. And that new person coming in, is not going to be looked at skeptically because people already know. Do they know the kids who come into the gym or the, the other people who come into the gym, do they know each other? At this point, a lot of them do yeah. um, because we're working with so many different groups and we're kind of at, we're not at capacity in terms of an individual standpoint, but mm -hmm. in terms of what groups we can work with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So most of them already, I mean, they've spent time in jail together. Yeah. They know each other or they know each other's friend. That's so interesting. So what, what does the typical person who comes into your gym look like? Or, you know, is it young, old, male, female? It, it varies. It, it is predominantly uh, young men. Young men. Um, 
in the age range, uh, the youngest person we've ever officially enrolled was 12. He was part of three armed robberies with a gun, so we weren't going to wait for him to hit some arbitrary number. Right. Uh, the oldest person we're working with is 37. He's been shot seven different times, eight times altogether. Mm. Uh, so it's really based on life circumstance. The average age range is more between like 17 and 25. Okay. And do they have family? They do have family. Um, I mean, you hear some of the stories of some, some of the people on our program. Most have had a family member locked up before them. Mm-hmm. Um, most are coming from a family income of less than $10,000 per year. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes no one is working or mm-hmm. it's a single family household uh, and, and the mother is, is working. Um, but I mean, the trauma too, it's in asking some of our guys, more than 50% have seen someone shot or die before the age of 12. Right. And, and the impact that that will have <laughs> on, on a young person, it's, it's it, you can't compare, at least for myself, I can't compare the way I grew up and right. look at that as, as, oh, why aren't you in school? Why aren't you? <laughs> you can see why, uh, yeah. why there's a wall at 18 years old. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's been sadly patterned and, and taken away from that. I think, again, it comes down to if you use fear to rationalize mass incarceration, you are taking family members out. Right. And not in a setting where they're getting help. Right. And, and able to come back and, and, and be better for help their shift. family. Right. Uh, right. You're simply just taking a key person out. And then what happens? So that's an interesting point. So, um, when you're working with the people who come into your gym, <clears throat> do what happens as they evolve through these four stages to their relationships, their families? I mean, do you see shifts happen kind of beyond just them personally? Yeah, a- absolutely. So one of the shifts that we see is that a lot of people, as they go through our program, they start bringing in their family members and their friends. Mm. Um, we also see... Uh, we have one person who got a job at Enterprise. Now he's getting a job for other people at Enterprise. And, and, and you see this kind of ripple effect uh, where the opportunities that they are now leveraging, they in turn leverage for others. Um, so beautiful. Yeah. It's, and I think it's, it's a lot of what I saw in Alexan and his friends back in 2005, 2006 was, was – you know, the streets were looked at as this violent, terrible place. You know, yeah. they're thugs, they're gang members, they're criminals, other words that are used to really perpetuate fear and in, 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 in these systems. And, and what I saw were people who cared about each other, right. people pulling together with what little resources they had. Within this, like, really tight, cramped box because you've just yeah. set up this paradigm that's not very big it, and exactly. that you probably can't escape. And so you've got to yeah. figure out how to survive in it, really. Exactly. And, and, and so at the core of it, what I saw was love and support and togetherness. Yeah. And yeah, of course, I don't agree with any decision that ends in, 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 in kind of illegality, but uh, when you look at that being the core and then you all of a sudden provide positive options, mm-hmm. you see the same thing. It's that love, it's that togetherness, uh, it's that support. But now this time, in, instead of turning to the streets to make money, you can't make money anywhere else. If you can't get money, you can't help your family out with rent and you can't help out with food and, and you know everything else. Right. Um, but now you're able to help out in, in expanding these positive opportunities and options for other people. And you have to understand, it makes sense that trust is such an important piece of it because you really have to trust that that positivity and those openings are actually accessible to you, that yeah. they're really there for you and that, that they're truly not you know, kind of a facade. Yeah, there's no, no one who's been uh, shunned by society wants to go to something else just to have that door closed on them right. for something that people don't understand. So let's talk about education for a moment. Um, the average person who comes into your gym, how did they make it through high school? They're, they're generally from Boston, I would imagine. Yep. And they, they were at some point probably enrolled in the Boston public school system. Yeah. Do they so- talk about that? Most have been expelled or dropped out from mm-hmm. uh, the, pu- the Boston public school system. Mm-hmm. Uh, most who do have uh, their GD got their GD in prison. Okay. Um, and then we have a, a fair amount of people who 
need their GED, uh, but struggle because they can't necessarily get anywhere safely or, or go to a class. Okay. Um, so it's, it's another area where we actually leverage the gym and, and have set up classrooms where we can have instructors come in and, and teach someone. That's great. Um, so kind of looking at our gym is, is not just a gym, but this place where, you know, what we can do really well is earn trust, is, is get people to the gym. Yes. So then how we leverage it to bring in all the things that we're not going to be the best at. We're, we're, we're not going to be the best, nor do we want to even be ourselves a GED program. But there's so many great programs and, and instructors out there. Can we bring them in and, and get them working? So this, right, so, so this notion that there's this schoolyard to prison yard pipeline, which I didn't really understand until I started working in the cafeterias. And as I, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible to me that depending on where I am in the city and which school I'm in, the, the odds go up that the kids that I'm yeah. sitting with at a table could end up in prison. Yeah. Right. I mean, like it's, yeah. these are real hardcore, pretty dense statistics. And um, so I'm curious if you think, and maybe it's just too far out of scope of the education system, but are there things that aren't being done today that you think would be smart to do within the framework of the public school system to help expose kids to kind of what your level one is, right? Before yeah. they have to go through this entire traumatic cycle. Yeah. So I definitely have ideas. Um, and I have no clue though, all the different burdens that are on teachers or, or the school system. But I do think right. that, you know, I remember this, this was, um, I don't know, four or five years ago, I remember hearing in the news, uh, someone from, I think it was like Braintree high school had committed suicide and they closed the school down for a couple of days and they got guidance counselors and they helped support people yes. through that trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens in BPS and, and it's tough because you're talking about such a large volume compared to like an Amherst mass. If something happens, that's like you know, right. one person. And of course we can all rally around, but the more you can adapt to that individual, their circumstance, their context, the, I mean, the people that, at least for me, I, I think back to my favorite teachers, it, it wasn't necessarily what they taught. It's, it's the connection they were able to make with me. I think it's the same thing in, in this case. And, and, and again, it might not be a fair burden to place on the Boston public schools where they're working with so many people. But if someone came in that morning and didn't eat, yeah. if someone came in that morning and, and their cousin was killed the night before, yeah. if someone came that morning and they saw someone shot or die the night before, they are not going to be able to learn the way I was growing up. Right. And I can't imagine how much it would take to go into a, having that kind of adaptability and flexibility in school. And, uh, but I do think until you can get to that point, yeah, the system is just not going to work for people who are, are facing such extreme circumstances and trauma. And, and also for people who are just up against some really hard circumstances in general without the extremes. Right. Yeah. I think it's such a beautiful point that, um, Part of it is a pause where, you know, the schools are under such rigorous pressures to hit milestones around achievement tests. And um, the city is, you know, being deeply criticized right now for, you know, the number of kids who can even hit or exceed expectations on, on test scores. And it's not very high at all. But to your point, if you have so many kids coming to school, because it's not really one kid. When someone's shot in their community, it's so exactly. many kids who experience that same trauma and go back into the schools the next day that, you know, we adults need to be kind of mindful and thoughtful and maybe the pause, right? Yeah. And, and really kind of thinking about how to tackle those immediate stressors. I mean, if they walked into school with cancer, we wouldn't sit them down and start teaching them math, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's just, um, yeah, it's amazing what is hidden in, in our minds that actually needs to be addressed in order for us to be successful. Yeah, yeah, and I think, I think it also is just compounded by the fact that, not necessarily that you're not supposed to bring it up, but if you don't feel safe bringing this stuff up, no one's sure. ever gonna know. And, and, and again, I don't think that's fair to put on the scary stuff, child. to your point. Yeah. This is all fear-based stuff. Yeah. Exactly. To sit and talk about someone being shot last night is, is yeah. Um, yeah, especially yeah. for someone like you or me where we have no context for that. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. Um, 
so you there are other organizations in Boston who are working on this as well. Are do you all work together? Are there many of them? Could there be more? Uh, you know, I think there there could always be more. Um, you know, there's groups like Roca, mm-hmm. like College Bound Dorchester, mm-hmm. um, Youth Connect, uh, Youth Opportunities Unlimited. I, I think what it comes down to, though, and this is maybe me talking more philosophically, yeah, uh, is that if you keep just working with one person at a time, as great as that is there's going to be 10 more right behind that person. I was going to say, because I, I was going to ask you the question, but it was just, I thought I would frustrate both of us. But I mean, like, because right, the list, the, the list just keeps staying the same size, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I think it's until we can, and, and this is no one organization, no one person can do this. It has to be a systemic change. Yeah. yeah. And again, I think it's where there is a big opportunity uh, to leverage connection, mm-hmm. understanding, mm-hmm. and again, to combat uh, what I think is the, the biggest lever in the system, which is fear, mm-hmm. um, to essentially do the same thing that society has moved towards in the opioid crisis, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, where you look at an individual as a person, not a statistic, and you start addressing uh, and helping. Yeah versus criminalizing and punishing. Um, and so as important as the work is, I, I think to whatever extent people can rally together, and, and I think this actually becomes kind of a real vision for, for where I'd love ICW to go, is that we start off as this weightlifting program. Mm-hmm. We then turn into a workforce development track. We then move from workforce development track into this organization talking about social capital and and, and not just a track and personal training, but beyond, to now really growing those core services, staying just as focused as ever, uh-huh. but leveraging that to become a brand and, and play a role in a broader movement right. that gives people voice and agency, that challenges these narratives. Uh, and, and again, I think that there's no one person or organization that will have success doing that alone, but the more people can own their pieces of the puzzle, kind of the, the aspect they're working on, but together... Um, kind of have this amplified voice and, and in turn effect, now you actually start changing all the, a lot of the uh, circumstances and systems that lead to the streets right? And, and so many other social issues in the first place. All right, you really get to the one plus one equals three. You're the, you're the, ROI, the ROI on the dollars that you raise is pretty significant. Yeah, and, and I'm excited to say, too, that the 4.2 ROI is the most conservative estimation. That's just looking at... So this is saying that you make a return for society that is 4x, a little more than 4x on every dollar that comes in exactly. to ICW. And, and that is simply based on our average recidivism rate uh, among people in, in, in stages 2, 3, and 4. So reducing the number of times they'd go back into the system and the costs associated with that. Yes, ex- yeah. exactly. And then looking at what's the, the cost per participant versus yeah. the cost of incarceration. It's not taking into consideration harder to uh, quantify aspects such as the cost of a single homicide is up to $17 million. And that's taking into account. How cer- is that factored? $17 so million. That, I think it was the University of Iowa. It has a very detailed um, So it's the whole study. impact on the community. Whole impact on the yeah. community, the healthcare system. Right. Uh, well, and once time in jail, safety comes down, and then the whole value, yeah. the neighborhood goes down. The property values are a big factor. Yeah. In yeah. that. Okay. Um, yeah. So when you look at that, and, and <laughs> your other ROI costs, is yeah. off the charts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then then it's like right. 30, 30 to one. Yeah. Um, That's yeah. It's it's really interesting. It's very interesting stuff. So um, tell me. Tell me just about you. So how do you how do you spend your days? And how do you spend there's gotta be a lot of energy coming at you yes. that is not yours. And so how just also how do you take care of yourself while you're doing this work? Because you always you always look like fresh and chipper whenever well, I see you. You just, you know, it's because I'm always three anchored. coffees in at that point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I guess. Yeah. I, I think the starting point is, is I'm just so passionate 
yeah. about this. And the reason why I'm passionate is that every day I feel like my life gets changed. Yeah. Um, cool. You know, I, I couldn't be happier as difficult as the work can, can be at times. And it, and it certainly is a roller coaster. You have some of the most amazing highs and, and some of the lowest lows, mm. but getting to know the people in our program, like I feel lucky <laughs> that I get to do this work. Uh, I feel lucky that I get to know and, and be some small part of the journey that, that the people in our program are on. I, my day can certainly shift. Uh, if we're looking at average time spent, certainly stuck in traffic on 93 is, is the highest. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> generally, uh, you know, the, the morning will be meeting some coordination for the day. Um, I'll try if I can to spend as much time in the gym and, and just kind of on the floor, uh, you know, losing in chess, uh, seeing that I'm no longer even anywhere near being one of the stronger people in the program anymore. <laughs> um, but really just listening. Yeah. And I think that gives me my, my foundation and my base to, to make better decisions. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd say overall, you know, equal amount of time spent thinking about strategy, thinking about people and team and, and thinking about program and, and mission. Right. Um, and, and, and also just knowing that doing this work, the day can change in, in, in a single phone call or a single text. Yeah. Um, in terms of how I take care of myself, uh, my, my biggest thing is surfing. Oh. Uh, I'm not particularly good at it. Where are uh, there waves around here? Uh, so Rhode Island, okay. uh, I'll go to Second Beach and First Beach. Okay. Uh, I'll go to Tasket, although they tagged a great white shark like a mile up the coast. So yeah. that, that one I try not to go to as often. <laughs> um, uh, good Harbor Beach is one of my favorites when the waves are coming the right direction. But then there's also New Hampshire and, and Southern Maine. Okay, who uh, knew? Yeah, and, and you, know, you can't have a cell phone out there, no yeah. computer. So you can think about stuff. You can't actually do anything. And that is so liberating to me. Yeah. Um, so surfing is where I, I spend my time um, in terms of self, self-care. That's great. That's great. John Feynman, thank you so much for being here today. I just, I always love talking to you about this and um, you always put me in a very good place. So thank you. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity and all the support. And, and yeah, you know, this doesn't work if it's just me or just us. So couldn't be more grateful for, for you and everything you've done for us and the people in our program. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining my conversation with Inner City Weightlifting founder and executive director, John Feynman. Every time I talk with John, I'm reminded of how magnificent he is and how lucky we all are to have an angel like him working amongst us. His perspective on how human we all are is incredibly refreshing and motivating. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.